0: everybody. Welcome to episode 13 of Drop the Needle in the Haystack, a podcast where ideally we would use the Forgotify website to take a look the tracks on Spotify that had until that point never been played. But uh, we've got some news about our good friend Forgotify. It had been on its last legs for a while, but we didn't expect it would leave us so suddenly. It's broken.
1: I don't. I don't even know if it's just broken, Robbie. I think it's dead. It's dead. In the gone. past, it was broken. Yeah. Yeah. It 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 had been on life support, but um.
2: Yeah, I was on the last not sure. legs for sure.
0: Yeah. So. Uh,
2: sad day. It is a very. Yeah, twenty twenty um. Twenty twenty just doesn't know when to when to call it quits. Am I right, fellas?
0: That's what I'm saying. Unlucky episode. It won't stop 13, throwing
2: those punches. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What more can be taken from us?
2: So, Arande, I didn't see a black you
1: know. cat today. You did? No, that could be it. So you you're know? saying it's your fault? Maybe that was it. Yeah, it's it your could fault, be my fault. I shouldn't have looked.
2: But then again, those... it was
1: after I found out Forgotify
2: had died. Um so So whoever the two people who probably made Forgotify are, we are begging you to please just give us our friend back. Please <laughs> yeah. just do do what you do what you have to do. Everyone, raise your hands to give Goku energy to to give us Forgotify back. <laughs> write it on your christmas list for santa claus do do whatever it takes
0: that would that's our our one christmas wish this year that's all we want but you know what given that that may or may not happen we're kind of thinking about our the structure of our show we're going to keep at it we're going to think of different things to do there's other maybe randomizers we could check out and there's other Playlist that have tracks already pulled from Forgotify that maybe we could look at. Whatever we do, we're we're going to be keeping sort of in the spirit of highlighting and celebrating obscure or more obscure music. We're going to kind of play it by ear. We've got some, I guess you could call them residuals, some leftovers. that The reserves. Some reserves stored up. So uh, we're going to use those today and then we're going to kind of see what we can come up with for next time. But bear with us. Wait for us, Please. Say a little prayer for us uh and it's my turn first right
2: yeah
1: it is your turn first
0: all right this one goes out to forgotify so this week i took a look at the band the skinny and there are a lot of bands called the skinny it turns out but this is the band uh that features it's a quartet features kyle ash on guitar ben patterson on the hammond v3 jake vinzel on electric bass and mike Schlick on drums so The Skinny is a Chicago-based kind of funk, jazz band. It's uh, sort of those uh, group of musicians arose out of the scene. Of course, Chicago has a really fertile music scene, especially in terms of jazz and blues. And they're kind of made up of all-star members. So they played with Chris Morgan. They played with all sorts of uh, legends on the Chicago scene. Charles Erland, it says. Melvin Ryan. George Cables, I recognize. So... Lots of kind of bona fides in the jazz world. And it looks like their kind of artistic mission statement is really marrying these jazz and funk influences. Right. I'm looking at their website on TippinRecords.com right now. And one paragraph reads, while many front groups lack the harmonic sophistication of a good jazz soloist and many jazz groups fall flat when trying to play an honest backbeat. The skinny pride themselves on being able to stand with one one musical foot planted firmly in each style. We can kind of talk about that and what you guys think, but first why don't we take the listen. This is, like I said, from the album Dig On It and the track is (laughs) J-Rock. you can uh, hear, obviously, you know, a classic kind of organ-oriented funk sound, right? The funk kind of, or the organ grouping, especially for for funk and soul jazz, traditionally consists of the organ. It's got the drummer and just a guitarist, and usually the bass parts are covered by um, by the pedal or the left hand of the organist. But sometimes, like in this group, they expand with the bassist. Uh, and so, as you can probably hear from the recording there, really driving rhythmically, got that 16th note pulse. Uh, and I was interested when I read that kind of excerpt from their uh, from their website there. What do you guys yeah, think? How- sorry,
1: can you repeat that real quick, the-, the excerpt real quick?
0: Yeah, so it says, while many funk groups lack the harmonic sophistication of a good jazz soloist, and many jazz groups fall flat when trying to play a really honest black or backbeat, The skinny pride themselves on being able to stand with one musical foot planted firmly in each style.
1: Interesting. Okay, so uh, that's, that's quite the statement to make, you know? I'd like to hear more of the rest of the album because, of course, this is it has that driving almost minimalistic repetitive kind of strain to it in regards to how they're progressing through the music. There isn't, like, some intensive jazz solo happening. It's mainly digging into that you know, funk beat, which is great. You know, it's really, really nice. I, I'm just not sure I hear that statement in this particular track uh, come through. But again, I've literally only listened to this, so maybe the rest of the album really kind of highlights that. They've got a nice sound, though. I do like the the guitar taking over in that, I don't know, what you would call it, like a second verse or, you know, as they, as they shift, everything feels pretty tight. And, uh, I mean, they pick some good chords, even if it's... Uh, Kind of on repeat, Matt. What do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, to me, this just reminds me so much of like the music that my mom really likes and that like I heard so much when I was a kid. Kind of like uh Santana and like the Grateful Dead and like Blue Oyster Cult, you know? Like. Sure. And I guess I guess I just forget like how much of that music because like that's now that's like classic rock, but how much of that really did owe to like. The evolution of of jazz and funk, kind of going on concurrently. It's I don't know the backbeat comment just super funny to me because of how pervasive the cowbell is. Did you guys like <laughs> pick it up?
0: Right. At all? Yeah. In the... Yeah. There's just
2: like a cowbell going like the whole time. But like those riffs are really nice. They're just like very kind of nice riffs to live in. And I even like how much it changes like texturally and timbly when it when it changes there towards the end of what we listened to. It gets into like the higher kind of like uh, harmonics of the guitar. I mean this is a little bit more in your arena, Robbie. Like what what do you think?
0: Well, I think for this track specifically, this is definitely to my ears more more funk oriented. Um, and you know, they list all the classic funk influence, the meters and James Brown, guys like that, which I think is appropriate especially for this. And I think if you listen to more of the album, from what I can recall, it is sort of more more solo or has kind of more solo-oriented stuff. And this, I, I mean, I enjoy it. I, I I don't mean to sound like I'm very critical of them, because it's clear they're all really talented musicians, and I, I honestly enjoy the track. It's just kind of a strange statement to me, you know, and I, I guess especially in this day and age, you've got funk and jazz musicians are pretty much the same thing 90% of the time. Uh, I, though I guess it might be fair to say that a funk group will not have usually the harmonic complexity. Certainly not the solos usually that a more jazz-oriented group would have. But I hear in this a lot of the classic funk kind of rhythms, right? Sixteenth notes, that driving sixteenth note pulse, the backbeat that they mention. Even though we do have that cowbell too, offbeat sixteenth notes. It's kind of like, and you get this in a lot of funk music. I think the way I, I sort of hear about it is like there's there's like four or five rhythmic elements that usually are kind of built around either playing offbeat 16th notes or very pointedly not playing offbeat, offbeat 16th notes. And you kind of mix and match there and fit them together like a jigsaw puzzle to get that rhythmic texture. And that's what I hear a lot in this one. Da-da, 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 as very common kind of funk rhythm you hear um, all the time. And that combined with, with something like the cowbell, if it's going on every downbeat, or something like... The backbeat, uh, you know, makes the groove there. So that's sort of what I, what well, the impression I got from my listening there.
2: Yeah, I actually, it's really interesting to think about those rhythms. You know, I'm sure we've all experienced this, right? Reading pop rhythms off of the page. That's Oof. just like the worst. Oof. <laughs> yeah. That is the worst, yeah. Like, I remember, oh God, it didn't feel like this, but it was a year ago already. Um, I was working with one of my students who's middle school-aged, and um, they were playing, I just want to say classic kind of rock tunes, but, you know, she's a middle voice instrument, so she had some of the really obscure, like, um, she had to play a riff of Wonderwall, that's what it was. She had to be, like, one of the chord riffing voices for Wonderwall, so it was these horrible syncopations that I'm like, how there's no way i'm going to be able to teach you how to read these syncopations in like a timely fashion so instead we just have to feel it right it yeah. was it was something ridiculous like you know dotted 16th and or no dotted eighth with a 16th tied to like another 16th and eighth and, you know what i'm talking about like mm. those kinds of rhythms right
0: yeah, yeah very, very syncopated very but like, yeah like offbeat offbeat things or oh offbeat 16th notes that's like that's kind of the rhythmic flavor of a lot of that kind of stuff.
2: And uh, yeah, so my my professor, my professor of composition at Peabody, Dr. Oscar Bettison, he wrote his uh, PhD for Princeton on like psychedelic funk music. And nice. there's a lot of funk transcriptions in his paper. And he he made a note similar to what you said, Robbie, where like the hallmark of the style is actually like the bass instruments and bass voices that we usually think of as grounding the beat and the texture are typically avoiding downbeats like as much as possible in like these kind of riffs and motives. And he actually, you know, transcribed the full ensemble of like, you know, what was happening in some of these very complicated like funk riffs. And it's just interesting because we think of, you know, Western music notation as a graph to graphically see all of the like pockets of the beat being filled in by the different voices, like, What's the bass doing? What's the hi-hat doing? What's, like, the guitars? Like, funk guitar? What is it the funk guitar player doing? Like, that kind of... Uh, when I, I like the way you put it, though. Like, lining it up around the meter, right? It's like an extreme hocket almost. Yeah.
0: And I, I guess that's kind of what, you know... Uh, and I don't want to put words in their mouth. It could be that's just what the record company put up there, and they have no idea, or it's just so one of those things people put in their bios that they just think this will sound nice, even if you read it back and you're like, "This is what the fuck am I saying here?" Uh, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, but I, I think, especially maybe compared to to jazz or, or kind of the more traditional jazz, not that it doesn't have a beat or anything, but it's not quite as you know rigid in that way uh, as like you say all the the funk music is things like that
2: because there's plenty of very complicated jazz there's also plenty of very square jazz but i don't think if i'm thinking of funk i am thinking of those those syncopated rhythms that we almost take for granted we don't recognize them as being hyper complicated rhythms because of how feelable they are right right? right. like the bass riff to uh, i feel good is nothing but syncopations right and yeah, that's true. That's the, right. the downbeat is the only downbeat of the, the the downbeat of the measure. What's that? Play that! Play that funky music, white boy, with like the really active bass line. But these right. are very feelable, so we don't recognize them immediately as complicated.
0: And, yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's interesting because one of the things uh, I was taking lessons with a guy in Cincinnati once, and he mentioned, kind of in the development of of jazz music. You've got, like, basically the rhythmic subdivisions you're feeling get smaller and smaller, right? You go back to something like ragtime or something like the the traditional jazz. It's really kind of a quarter note pause. Bop, 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 bop. That kind of, like, chunking on the banjo or or whatever. Then you get into the swing era and bebop and things like that. It becomes the eighth note, the swing eighth notes. And then you get into things like fusion and funk. The underlying subdivision is all those sixteenth notes. And it's kind of interesting to see you know those rhythms small faster and faster that we're we're kind of really paying attention to
2: yeah that is that is a really good point. I like that that tracing back to even like the like the tin pan alley uh style of guitar playing just like the chop guitar right right, right. yeah that's that's really interesting
0: I think that's about all I have on that one yeah got... why
2: don't we uh move on to some I don't know would we call it similar content what do you think eric well it it definitely fits right in. With the death of Forgotify,
1: I went back um, to a playlist a previous guest of ours had made. So shout out to Chelsea De here for making a playlist of Forgotify finds when she was deciding what she wanted to bring on the show. This was one of the rejects. Just kidding. Uh, she picked a really, <laughs> she picked a really good track. <laughs> uh, yeah. Only no, the best for really our
0: good. audience. Yeah.
1: She picked a really good track that week, and um, this was a close second. So this is Why by the band Boogie Bone on their album Pro-Bone-O.
2: And all of their, (laughs) yeah, what an album title. Eric, Um, I was thinking I hope he spells it out for the audience, and I'm glad that you did. Yeah. And
1: all of their albums, just so everyone knows, has Bone in the title and then has, uh, you know, it's got a dash in between that and the next word. So their first album is just titled Boogie Bone, second album Bone-A-Fide, and then yeah, Pro Bono. And so, yeah, this is why, why don't we listen to a little bit of it? So there we go. We got some uh, Ron Swanson, Duke Silver jazz saxophone over, you know, pretty standard band. But it's it's interesting. So this band no longer exists. But let me say just a little bit about it. After seven years, three all-original records and hundreds of kick-ass shows, the members of Boogie Bone are turning the page to new projects. We end as we begin, great friends and brothers. And that's the only statement they really make on their band page uh here's a little bit more information i will say from the start that if you want your blues fix to be traditional straightforward blues boogie bone may not be for you if you are open-minded and enjoy a band that takes the blues into a special place you are in for a treat this band is hard in the bedroom
0: eric (laughs) (laughs) sorry It, it
1: certainly could be with you know the way he's playing that saxophone This band is hard-hitting and driven by a rock influence while retaining the meaning of a blues band. This band brings a whole bunch to the table. What is the meaning of a blues band, Robbie? I feel like you would have... Uh,
0: Is that a zen zen cone? What's the sound of one hand clapping? What's the meaning of a blues band? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a good question, Eric. You know, I certainly hear... I guess what comes to mind to me, uh, to me immediately is someone like Grover Washington with the sax playing, right? Just the two of us and, you know, a whole bunch of other great albums. And I guess, and it's good, you know, we kind of get these together because this soul, this soul jazz funk kind of middle age, it's all mixed together, or at least the lines of genre kind of get hazy, I think, right? What's the difference between soul yeah. jazz and fusion and funk and what makes it not what is something that's like this is definitely funk and it's not at all jazz and this is definitely soul jazz and it's not funk at all but that's that's just sort of my own brain diarrhea but i like it a good track
2: i like the yeah, the fun. choice of the choice of brain diarrhea it stands in stark opposition to word vomit
0: right <laughs> i'm an innovator
2: <laughs> i just also i feel like we need to include this somehow their website is to die for, and I mean this in like the best way. I love their website. Like I'm looking at it right now because I remembered how good it is. And like, first of all, I just love the commitment to the names of like their albums. Bonafide.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're not afraid to uh, no. to keep going there.
2: You know, they're really they're really keeping it going, but th- th- just. And again, I mean this with the most love possible Boogie Bone members, if you are listening. I think who said it, they look like people that Guy Fieri has on their show. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know? Yeah, you know, like, yeah, no, you're not wrong. Yeah, Guy like, Fieri, if you will. They look like they could be like yeah. Guy Fieri's brothers or something, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean,
2: the they, comparison uh... to Duke Silver is also very good, but they just they just kind of look like a bunch of dads. Yeah, they do. I want one of them to have frosted tips or is that what Guy Fieri has like his his hedgehog hair? Yeah, he has frosted he has frosted tips. Yeah, may it never die. But <laughs> They The sax playing's good though, right? Yeah, I was going to say the sax playing is extremely oh, nuanced yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> I heard like some ghost notes and and like some Do you think that's improv? Do you think he was improvising or do you think that's a pre-written solo? I
0: think it's pro- I think... probably improvised.
2: Yeah, I th- I was going to say I think it's improvised. It's not you know, improvised. it's
1: like it's like if um oh, I'm not gonna say it. it's too mean. Anyway <laughs> <laughs> The we, we can Black cut story. this. I I was not...
2: <laughs> I have a couple tangents that we can or cannot go down for for this this song in particular.
0: Oh please let's do it.
2: And we can yeah, again, again we can cut this right out of the episode if we need to. But I think there's two things that come to mind for me with this particular song. This section of the song, right? So we all we all had our snicker during the pre listening about the um the atmosphere of this music right and i think it's worth talking at least some extent about um how or maybe speculating over how and why the saxophone became like the sex symbol instrument right because there's just something about like the the chords here like the style of the guitar playing and the very spacious like uh atmosphere of the music created by the reverb and like the, the echo delay if you can hear it in the background Bill Clinton played the saxophone. How, how did we let this instrument dominate, you know? Like, what, what happened here? Any any ideas, fellas? Uh, there, there has to be an academic paper in here somewhere. Well, Eric, yeah.
0: why don't you go read that paper, you nerd? Well, I mean, I here... have a theory,
2: but I want to know you guys' thoughts.
0: That's a good question. You know what? I, I'm not really sure. I, I I guess it would just have to do with a, a lot of the these funk or these soul groups. Sort of, uh, well, they feature the instrument, and their subject matter is oftentimes sexual. I, I don't know. That's as far as I can really go. Perhaps a
2: lot right. of associated meaning. Also, you know, like when did saxophone and jazz maybe start to be merged with, like, movies? Maybe, maybe you know, like James Bond movies, stuff like that. You get some steamy scenes, and someone was right. like, slap a saxophone in there, boom, boom. That's Got right. Atmosphere music gets the people going. Makes them wanna. To... I mean. What? we're all dancing can, around can we, here. Can, can we say that on the podcast? I don't know. We can oh my about... god. I've said that before. Not in the in the verb form.
1: Oh, I see.
0: Right. I got the I could do the PG one, but not adjective,
2: the Rf. adjective. Um, adjective. <laughs> but no. I'm mourning. My
0: friend's dead. My
2: my theories range from less to more more to less stupid. The less stupid side of things is like there's 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 this like long con sociological theory of for, for decades, popular music has been described as decadent, right? Mm-hmm. You can trace this all the way back to enlightenment thinkers where like popular music has been described as decadent and sublime and, and inappropriate. There's like an article that I had to read that was basically decrying. Like um, if you listen to, if you let your teenagers listen to too much like rock music, they will be more prone to uh, like being be bad kids. They cite the rhythm, and that's been like the thing—these decadent rhythms. So you can trace it back to rock with like you know Elvis Presley swinging his hips on stage. You can trace it back to jazz, and you can even trace it back to waltz. That's like how far we're talking here, you know? Like decadent music, decadent rhythms that would like make you sin and stuff like that. So I wonder if like saxophone is the instrument of jazz and it's been associated over the years of like, you know, these are the musics that lead you to do more bad stuff. Is this like how saxophone got into the position it's in as like, you know, we had sexy sax man for a reason and like the the George Michael song, right?
1: Yeah, um, I'm sorry. You're you're talking and I'm hearing you a little bit, but I am also reading a paper on this exact question. (laughs) That's right. There's a paper <laughs> written about this. Yeah. It's actually kind of interesting. What's so, the name of the paper, I mean, Eric? Think, All right. It's, from, it's actually from a book called The Saxophone as a Symbol and Icon. He puts a whole chapter devoted to this particular question. I'm seeing the word moaning a lot because the saxophone has a very moaning sound. Didn't, uh, I, um,
2: I didn't, see that. didn't Percy Granger say that the saxophone is the most akin to the human voice of all the instruments?
1: I've heard that about literally every instrument. I don't care about that anymore. I know. I've seen. I've I've seen people say that for the oboe. Like maybe it's a really (laughs) French voice. I
2: don't know. Um,
0: And Percy Granger said a lot of things that we might not know. Percy Granger. (laughs) Percy.
2: (laughs) Percy Granger believed that the saxophone was the most human-like, which is why it was often given the singing lines in his music. And Percy Granger, ironically, also had some very uh colorful sexual history but uh, yeah why don't we uh, take a look at my selection for this week which is completely different from from both of yours and um yeah we've talked a few times about like the things that we frequently get from uh forgotify and that we usually just kind of omit right because we just get too many of them and it seemed like at first we noticed it was like um like motown anthologies beat packs kind of like you know what i mean like discs that were just beats for, like, DJs to use. Right. And um, a lot of classical music. And, you know, us being classically trained musicians, we we can see and appreciate the irony of that, right? Like, there's always the parts that no one really cares about. Like, does anyone really care about the last movement of a Haydn symphony? No. No one does, right? You don't want to hear the rondo. You're just there for that exposition of the first movement. But so this week, I I felt it would be um, appropriate not to ignore... Any more of the classical music that we usually skip over, and this is a recitative from a Handel oratorio. Uh, does Does anyone know how to say this one? Je, it, Jephtha? Jephtha, 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 Jephtha. Yeah, that sounds Jephtha biblical. It sounds like some biblical. Name. I don't know. J e p h t h a. It's a It's a mouthful. So this is from a Handel oratorio, and I really like the title of the album. It's called "Own the Power." of harmony with exclamation point power with like a hyphen over where the E would be and it even says hidden vocal and instrumental gems of Handel implying that they know that these are hidden gems right mm. and that like they deserve more attention but this is a recitative, yeah. and um, the recitatives are the parts that usually get get skipped from from like oratorios and operas but let's just listen to it because it's only about 30 seconds so we can actually listen to the whole thing
0: You see the harvest for the
2: bloody field But ah, how terrible
0: are my senses When a whole
1: nation gleams And groveling eyes Camping for liberty
2: and pride that even had like a nice, a nice little uh, Picardy Turn to Major at the end there and this singer is, I believe, Jennifer Lane. And, you know, this recording is great. Everyone sounds really good. The continuo sounds nice, the harpsichord, and that, I think, a dagamba, probably, a viol dagamba. And the soprano sounds great, you know, singing in the style with very minimal amounts of vibrato. Yeah, this is like a forgotify's forgotify. This is a recitative from an a Handel oratorio that the three of us had never heard of. So uh, what do you guys think is, like, the, the the quandary here we're facing with with recitatives and recitative like things the, the the ignored parts of music so for me I
1: I've always had a soft spot for recitatives um, the the call and response the purity of the sound that you get generally from the vocalist because it's not like they're doing anything crazy generally in terms of a melody or having to jump through a lot of notes or any kind of weird technique. Um, you get a very clear musical interaction. You know, it's more about the sound than producing any kind of melody. And I'm, I'm a big sound guy, like tone and sound. And I can get lost in just listening to someone, you know, play like whole tones or like scales very, very slowly. Just if if the sound is good enough, that's good enough for me. So recitative is like this this idea come to life and put into an opera or, you know, some other musical form like that. Um, Additionally, I'll never forget being a junior in college. And I was studying the Brahms um, clarinet quintet. And the second movement of the Brahms clarinet quintet has this section, which is literally just a recitative for the clarinet versus the, um, the rest of the quartet, the string quartet you're playing with. And having it explained to me that way and then going and listening to recitatives to really try and understand the interaction that should be happening and how that kind of give and take should happen and how the two uh, opposing voices interact was really interesting to me. And just, uh, yeah, it, it created this soft spot where I pretty much don't hear a recitative that I, I don't like anymore. Unless of course the performer isn't isn't doing well but that's that's a different story anyway robbie what do you think
0: you, well you know there it's certainly easy to dismiss as a as a perfunctory or just like kind of necessary part of getting through exposition you know just kind of we're getting through gotta connect the bits in a lot of ways a lot of them are, are well are that they kind of boil down to that but you know i think there is something to be said for their strength as Real mediums for, for expression, right? You you mentioned the Brahms Quintet there, and that reminded me of there's a list, one of the list piano legends, which is actually it's kind of appropriate because there's something, this particular one is an oratorio, right? And those are usually like biblical stories, isn't it? Religious kind of descriptions of a biblical story connected with arias and recitatives. And then the legends by Franz Liszt are a later piano work that aren't quite as. Uh, quite as well-known, but they're really nice, and they're about, um, they're basically Christian folklore. They they have stories about saints, and one of them is the Fr- St. Francis of Assisi uh, preaching to the birds, and there's a section in the middle that is, you know, basically a recitative. It, it it all boils down, and you get to this this, this one melodic line that's really very carefully, or the articula- articulation is very carefully notated, and then it has this tremolo surrounding it. Uh, and you know it's very impactful. It's hard to pull off, I think, to make it compelling. But I agree. I think there is something to be said for for the simplicity and the straightforwardness of of that kind of composition.
1: And you're right, Matt. Uh, Jennifer Lane does have a lovely voice here, and the uh, continuo and everything is working really, really well. Is supporting and and answering really, really well. So it's a nice production. It's it's amazing how much of this stuff was on Forgotify, yeah. How often we would run into it. I mean, we really took it for
2: granted. You don't know what you have until it's gone, right, fellas? Wow. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the irony of this. I forgot to mention the title of the recitative is "Twill Be a Painful Separation." Oh, prophetic. Will. prophetic indeed. But um, yeah, I just I, I find it very interesting eric that you uh way to completely contradict me thanks for that you enjoy recitative i feel like touching on robbie's point too singers probably find recitative very important and actually opera singers i would imagine probably have to spend a lot of time working on the expressive nuances of recitative i just remember i think my undergrad music history professor um dr jim davis he was like recitative is the part That gets you from aria to aria because everyone's just there to listen to the aria and it's true that's what we always remember from the operas right you know like nasun dorma the big aria but you need the exposition bomb recitative right beforehand and i'm just trying to think like i think recitative is still very much alive right in like the modern um, american musical kind of format right like recitative is still built into those i would i would assume so
1: i mean i'm not a huge opera buff and i don't know in general, the uh, which way the composition world is moving in, in regards to those things, but I haven't heard any recent operas that didn't include Regettive
2: as like a, what do you think of point? like um, I'm not I'm sorry I, I, I meant musicals like Broadway musicals and like even movie musicals. Oh, I see. like I'm trying to think of Frozen, right because like Disney mus Disney movies are basically the the next distillery down of of like the art form. Because you've got yeah. opera and then, like, Broadway musicals and then, like, Disney movies, right? That's pretty accurate. And then I'm just trying to think of the, the like, early song in Frozen, Love is an Open Door. And there's, like, the parts where the instrumentals just vamp in the background. Like, they vamp over, like, a little chord progression and the characters talk to each other. That's and, true. Right? Yeah, basically. And that's still kind of, like, the same thing. Exposition, bomb, recitative. But like a little bit different, but that's not the part of the song you're there to listen to. No, I guess that's true. Go ahead, Robbie.
0: No, I was just going to say, and I think maybe it's interesting to think about, you know, the ways that the that's developed that we this kind of thing. Right. Because if you want to tell a story with music, you've got to kind of deal with how are you going to get the story part out. Right. And so this is sort of like a very straightforward, like we're going to play some chords. I'm gonna add, st- and I'm gonna talk sing, and that's what it's gonna be. But you can see, basically, like you say, something like a recitative, in 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 musicals, in in uh, Disney movies, right? A lot of times, it does come down to like they're vamping over something, and then you're just saying the words, you're just doing dialogue. But even in something, I think about like something like Les M's, right? Les Miserables, yeah. which is kind of like was- a
2: Just gonna say Les Mis, yeah.
0: Right, like, it's like a pop opera, so there's arias, there's big numbers, but there's also these interstitial bits that are just to do with, uh, you know, getting the story. And some of it does sound like this kind of classic recipe, but others it's, like, very melodic. It's got its own sort of motifs that are developed just in those sections, so it's sort of interesting how that's developed.
2: It's funny, like, I go back and forth between how much I do and don't like Les Miserables, Because in some ways, I think it's like it's kind of like the young person's uh, that Benjamin Britten piece, the young person's guide to the orchestra. Oh, yeah. yeah. Where if you were to try and if you were to take somebody and be like, I'm going to show you something that'll make you understand motive and like cyclical form. And you had them watch and listen to uh, Les Miserables. They probably get it. But I think because I'm just a snob, kind of. Some of the musical (laughs) devices in that in that show just like really hits you over the head you know what i mean <laughs> just hammering you yeah and i that kind of grates at me personally when i like listen to the music and watch the show because uh like are you, are you guys familiar with it like oh yeah, yeah oh yeah that, that yeah. progression that just pops up over and over again the descending progression like duh, 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 that happens like a lot um, it's been a while since i've heard it but i think so it happens with um on my own the one that um fontaine has to sing when she's dying i dreamed a dream oh yeah and even the uh this can you hear the people sing that one where <sighs> the line is just going it's just stepping uh di- down the scale and you just hear it so much in the show and you're just like okay we get it like the descending thing but like that's the point this motive is supposed to be very apparent to anybody listening.
0: Yeah, I, and I think it is, is that, that is kind of the double-edged sword of something that is really good to onboard someone into, you know, some kind of form, is that it's kind of easy to grasp. But if you spend a lot of time with it or listen to maybe, you know, other pieces or different pieces of music similar in similar genres, it's like, it's a little on the nose.
2: But I don't feel that way about Star Wars which is also, like, the really good example of, of like, you know, pop and, and light motive. I don't know.
0: Well, I guess maybe Star Wars, Mes, with the Mis, it's like, I think maybe it might come in more frequently than with Star Wars, and it's much more focused because there's the music, the main thing, In Star Wars, you can kind of, like, here's yeah. the lightsaber fight now if you don't want to listen.
2: Yeah, yeah. true. A lightsaber fight recitative. <laughs> okay. Wait, do you guys think there's a Star Wars opera out- I feel like there's a Star Wars opera out there. <laughs> oh there yeah. has to be.
1: Space opera. There has to be.
2: There has to be no. a Star Wars opera. There has to be a Star Trek opera. What about like a Lord of the Rings opera? I know there was For like sure. an
0: off off Broadway musical of Lord of the Rings at one point. Off off
2: Broadway. Isn't there the off yeah. Broadway Harry Potter musical too? The Very Potter musical or something?
0: Oh that's yeah, that was like that was like an internet video though, wasn't it?
2: I, I don't know. I feel like I've I think heard it also and... ended up becoming a uh,
1: yeah, actual.
2: Do you guys remember the joke video that um Coldplay made about making a uh Game of Thrones musical? No, I don't even not... see this. It's it's actually super funny. I I still think about some of the songs from it every now and then where they like they make because they got the actual actors for the video. Oh like, really? They got they got the real cast of Game of Thrones, like all like there's some really funny moments where uh, this was post um, the reek bit, so where where they they oh, have okay. um, Theon's actor and and Ramsay's actor like lock eyes and it's like
1: oh I did see that okay yeah 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 I remember this. it's yeah. really
2: funny it's really funny it is
1: really funny man I was I've been seeing more and more just people talking about just the absurdity of how big a cultural phenomenon game of thrones was and how it has completely disappeared from the culture over the last year to the point where it virtually it could have never existed for for the amount that people still talk about it wait
2: was the series finale a year ago it was a year ago about
0: oh fuck
2: that was a that was last summer when we would like go to jordan's apartment and like watch it
1: that was the last summer yeah
2: oh my god like
1: the beginning of last summer
2: yeah you're right yeah
1: how it's just completely disappeared from the public's eye.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, no one was Game remember, stuff for Halloween. That didn't happen anyway. Yeah,
1: and, like, w- yeah, that's true. But when, like, the series ended, I think we have to remember that they had three additional series planned. And now it's maybe down to
2: one. Wait, they did?
1: Yeah, they had greenlit three additional Game of Thrones. Like, they, I think, two prequels and maybe, like, just a side spinoff. And now I think they're down to one prequel that may or may not happen. Just what
0: because...
2: Happened? Wasn't Amazon going to do a Lord of the Rings thing?
0: I, yeah, I keep hearing about that, but I've yet to see like any footage.
2: I'm looking forward to the,
1: I think, Amazon Wheel of Time series.
2: Oh, you mentioned that, yeah.
1: I think Aren't those coming. books like, massive? Yeah, they're massive. I'm on book nine now. Oh my god. i
2: got four left. Four or five left. Oh wait, are we done with the podcast? Because now we're just chatting. <laughs>
0: now we're just talking. Yeah. Should we do our uh, our recommendations? Yeah, what we've we
1: should to? do our recommendations because I, I got to get up on my soapbox.
2: Oh, okay. Oh, okay. So that means we have to save Eric for last.
1: I can go first. I don't really care, but mm, let's see. All right. Do we do we, do we, we? just want to do me... it? Are you sec, you're one ready? Sec. One sec. You, Robbie, you can look while I talk. All right. So, yeah, I think we've gotten to that point in the show where we want to talk about what we've been listening to this week. And I know Matt has probably already seen this. I don't know about you, Robbie, but I want to get up here on a soapbox for a moment. Uh, here we go. Earlier this week, I was practicing um, an excerpt from Peter and the Wolf. It's pretty, yep, I know. Yep, it's a pretty famous excerpt from the piece Peter and the Wolf, where the cat has to climb a tree to get away from the wolf. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Peter and the Wolf is a sort of narrated talking piece where written by Prokofiev. Anyway, uh, while I like the original piece, I think it's really great. Uh, it's definitely entertaining. It shows up a lot for children's concerts. My favorite and far none favorite album of this piece is a modern day reimagining called Peter and the Wolf in Hollywood. It's, it's totally an absolute gem. So like grandpa is a hippie like surfer bro and he talks like that. Peter moves from Russia and, like, has this kind of dark backstory where he moves from Russia to stay with his grandfather in, like, a mansion. And at some point, Peter gets to pilot, like, a giant mech robot. It's, it's like, wild. Like, the, the whole thing is wild. It's awesome. And it's, uh, it's not like some indie label either, right? It's not like some weird pet project uh, that some people with too much time had. It's narrated by Alice Cooper... It's published by uh, Deutsche Gramophone. So, like, one of the biggest names in yeah. in classical music recordings. I think I discovered it, like, five or six years ago, just flipping through the uh, Spotify recently released albums. And I was like, Peter and the Wolf in, in Hollywood, what is this? And it has been my favorite recording ever since. They add, like, some additional music. They add sound effects. The narration's great. Um, but if you know, like, if if you need something to listen to this week that's only going to put a smile on your face, it's going to be this. It's it's awesome. There's no way you listen to this and walk away angry. What if I do? Do I get my money back? No. No.
0: Yeah, Eric. How will you? You go straight to jail. That. Straight to jail.
1: <laughs> <laughs> if you don't like it, you go straight to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Right. Anyway, who wants uh-huh. to go
2: next? Uh, this week I'm preparing for a doctoral exam, so I've been listening to like the same things all week. Uh, Something I have been really enjoying from my list of things to listen to has been this piece by uh, composer Rebecca Saunders called Crimson for solo piano. I haven't encountered music like this at all before. It's very, uh, what's the word for uh, idiosyncratic? There's not much else that I can compare it to too easily, which is making it very hard to study. (laughs) But, you know, like, I've listened to it a few times over the last couple of days, and uh, I don't know, I I can't say much else about it. It's a very interesting language with, um, her, I think her goal, composer-wise, and her interests sonically, are to explore the parts of sound in music making that we often are not supposed to pay attention to. So, like, the sounds that the instruments produce by us using them and i think in some, like some cases yeah like clicking tapping breaths uh pressure those kinds of sounds sure and it's just yeah. a really cool piece because it messes with you when you're listening to it if you're not looking at the score because if you're looking at the score you see when she notates to like kind of tap on the side of the piano while playing because on the the high strings you know you hear like more attack than you do pitch kind of at times like the really right. really high strings it's just been a really cool way to like challenge the way that I'm I'm listening to like music and exactly how deeply you're paying attention to the sound production. So that's uh yeah that's the piece Crimson by Rebecca Saunders.
0: For me this week I was listening to a track called Soul Searching by Horace Silver on his album Total Response. Now you might know Horace Silver probably best known for a song for my father it's got that famous opening that steely dan used later so he's a really a big jazz pianist really famous jazz pianist but this was kind of in like he's one of those guys that had a really long career made music for decades and decades and so you start off in like the 50s and 60s playing bebop and hard bop and then you get into the 70s and 80s and a lot of these guys really start to experiment and i guess of course miles davis is like the most famous example of of that and some of them don't work out so well but this is kind of a very weird turn for for Horace Silver. If you're thinking of him from his song From My Father" days, it's it's lots of electronic instruments. He's playing electronic keyboards. Very psychedelic. It's got lyrics and the singer. But it's good. It's got that same rhythmic drive and, and really catchy uh, kind of elements that you could expect from all his songs. So Soul Searcher, Horace Silver. Oh, should I do the?
1: You were the last one to
2: go, and you do normally do that. Are okay. We well, to, are we supposed th- to continue mourning the loss of of Forgotify? It's all I can think about.
0: <laughs> well, like we said, we're gonna keep at it. If anyone out there listening has any ideas of what you might like to hear, feel free to reach out to us. We're gonna be drop at drop haystack on Twitter and drop the needle in the haystack on Facebook and Instagram. So please follow us there. Follow the show. Share it around if you like it. Rate and review it. We really appreciate it and helped us out a lot. We need it in these trying times. Uh, And yeah, like we said, we'll think of something. We'll keep it going in some form and fashion. But I think that's, that's all we have for today.
1: As always, everyone, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.